0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. Um, Just something a little different as we begin. Um, Most of you will be aware that uh, it's the centenary of Armistice Day this morning. Um, at 11 a.m. on the 11th month, the 11th day of that month, World War I ended and it's the 100 year anniversary of that, uh, I'm not sure how many of you are aware but uh, that war took a huge, tell, uh, a huge toll on fledgling New Zealand society, uh, uh, approximately 100,000 New Zealanders served and that was about 10% of our population, 18,000 of them lost their lives. And uh, this centenary gives us an opportunity to both acknowledge that loss and the trauma that that world uh, war caused, to reflect on and to pray for peace and hope. So I've set my alarm for 11 o'clock, or just one minute short of, and uh, I'm sure most of you are aware that throughout our nation at 11 o'clock people are going to stop and uh, share two minutes silence in terms of reflection, hope, and prayer and we're going to join them. So that's going to happen somewhere in the middle of my message. I'm not quite sure when the alarm will go off, um, but uh, it will, and I'm just letting you know what we're going to do. Okay. Um, I also this morning want to begin a new series that actually will lead us up to Christmas. It's Incredibly difficult to even get my head around the thought that we're doing a Christmas series or an Advent series, but we are. Um, I'm starting it a couple of weeks before officially Advent begins, but I plan to run the series that I'm starting into that season. I've called the series The Coming of a Promise, and what I hope to do is to look at the Christmas promise, the promise of the coming Messiah, and to consider it as uh, a pattern a paradigm, a template, if you like, of how God makes promises to people, how he makes promises to you and I personally, how he fulfills them, how he fashions those promises, what those promises require of us, how he brings into flesh the promises that he makes. So at Christmas, what we celebrate is what we call the incarnation, the making of the promise flesh, So the incarnation at the Christmas that we celebrate, of course, is the culmination of many, many promises that God gave to his Old Testament people. Uh, The coming of the Messiah had been clearly predicted by prophetic promise. Um, somebody has counted up and said that there are over 330 prophecies and promises in the Old Testament concerning the coming of this Messiah. Sometimes those references and promises are somewhat general, other times they are incredibly, amazingly specific. Perhaps the very first Reference the very first promise is found early in Genesis, Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, where it says, "And I will put enmity between you and the woman." God now is speaking in judgment over the serpent. I'll put enmity between between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel the first of the prophetic promises that indicate that there would be one who would come in the purposes of God who would deal with mankind's predicament. And as you move through the pages of the Old Testament, you'll find that that theme, that promise is reiterated. It's developed. It's deepened. We are told further on in Genesis that this promised one would come from the seed of Abraham, where in Genesis 22:18 it says, "And your offspring will be a blessing to the nations." And Galatians, of course, talks about that offspring as being singular, not plural. We're talking here about a Messiah who would come. He will emerge from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49:10 says, where it says, "The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, whom all the people shall obey." So somewhat general, you know, you're kind of at, at this point still wondering what this Messiah might look like, but as it goes down the funnel, as it were, it becomes somewhat more specific. We're told that, that he will come from the family of Jesse and David. Isaiah chapter, one, uh, sorry, chapter 11 verse 1 says, a green shoot will sprout from Jesse's stump, from his roots a budding branch. The life-giving Spirit of God will hover over him. We have told, of course, in that famous passage in Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen, that he will be born of a virgin. A child shall be born to a virgin, and he shall be called, and she shall call him Emmanuel. By the time you get to Micah, we are told where he will be born. Micah chapter five, verse two: "O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are but a small Judean village; yet you will be the birthplace of my king, who is alive from everlasting ages past." There are other things we're told about the coming of this Messiah. We're told that a messenger, a particular messenger, will precede him. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, listen, I hear the voice of someone shouting, make a road for the Lord through the wilderness. Make him a straight, smooth road through the desert. And of course, we know that that promise was fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. The time of his appearance actually was pre- predicted with incredible accuracy in Daniel chapter nine in the wonderful prophecy uh, that we call Daniel's 70 weeks. I'm not gonna read that portion, but you might like to sometime. His ministry of miracles was predicted. Isaiah chapter 35, verses five and six. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. The lame man will leap up like a deer and those who could not speak will shout and sing. His method and style of teaching was foretold. Psalm 78 verse 2, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Even the betrayal price was predicted in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12 and 13. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver and the Lord said to me, throw it, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. <clears throat> The form of his death was predicted in both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 as crucifixion, which is all the more remarkable for the fact that crucifixion wasn't a means of execution then. It was particularly a Roman means of execution. In the Hebrew economy, people were stoned to death. So the idea of hands and feet being pierced and so on as is predicted in those two passages would have been unknown to the people who were reading it at the time. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, he's pictured, he's predicted, he's promised. From Abel's lamb to Abraham's offering of Isaac. From the safety of Noah's ark to the safety of the blood splattered door at Passover. From the Levitical sacrifices to the law of Jubilee. Throughout the Old Testament, you see this one in the shadows. His presence is there. You cannot read the first part of the story, by which I mean the Old Testament, without being acutely aware that the people of Israel lived in the presence of a wonderful promise. In fact, Walter Brueggemann said, Israel is a people on the way because of a promise. Its whole history and life are understood in terms of that hope and in response to that promise. Now, it must have seemed many times in Jewish history to many of the Jewish people that this promise perhaps would never come. It was a long time. From the first promise in Genesis chapter three to Abraham was 2,000 years. From Abraham through to the coming of the promise was another 2,000 years. 4,000 years is a long time in anybody's book. And during that time, the people's interest, and com- in, interest in and commitment to that promise waxed and waned. There were, time when the prom- there were times when the promise was very much at the forefront of their corporate lives and thought. There was a tremendous sense of expectation and anticipation for its fulfillment. For example, during the reign of David and Solomon, you know, uh, when Israel's borders are at their largest, there was this incredible sense of expectation. But there were other times when the coming of the promise seemed so distant as to be almost an unreality. The time when the people were in Babylonian exiled, removed from land, from temple, from all things that, God had promised them. It seemed that they faced a mounting tension between the faith that they professed and the facts that they perceived. They seemed in those moments to be completely forsaken by God. You know, by the time Jesus came onto the scene, um, people had taken different positions regarding the possibility of this promise even being fulfilled. There were many who had basically given up on the promise by virtue of its long delay. They had abandoned their spiritual hope. They concentrated on secular flourishing. They'd given up on the possibility of that promise actually coming. Many in the wider Jewish diaspora were focused more on fitting into their cultural setting and getting ahead rather than looking for and expecting some kind of promised messiah. There were other groups that had decided that God wanted them to be the instruments of their own deliverance. Their motto was essentially, essentially God helps those who help themselves. And by the time Jesus was born, there was a group of people called the Zealots. These were a group of Jewish nationalists sickened by Roman domination and the years of oppression and exile that they had endured. And they grew tired of waiting for this deliverer. He was never there when, when they actually needed him, so they decided to become the answer to their own prayers. And they embarked on a program of terrorism to gain their freedom. And you can almost hear their cynicism as they would have snarled talking about these promises, promises, promises. We're sick of, we're sick of hearing them. You know, you, you live and you pray and you eat hay and you get pie in the sky when you die. Just forget it. We will, we will take for ourselves those things that we believe we deserved. There were others, of course, that were more passive in their despair. They wanted to believe the promises, but they'd been so long and nothing seemed to change. And a sense of hopelessness comes to torment. A haunting sense that nothing is ever gonna change grips their lives. There's nothing that gnaws at the soul more than a grinding spirit of futility. Perhaps they felt, you know what, we actually deserve the abandonment we seem to be experiencing. We know that we've failed at what God has called us to be and do and perhaps we should just be resigned to the fact that God has changed his mind regarding us. He's forsaken us, he's given up on us. There were the Pharisees of course. The Pharisees gave lip service to the promises but they seemed much more concerned with the progress of the religious system in their day and I suspect that actually they had forsaken the promises and turned them into politics and power. But there was another group, a smaller group perhaps, but despite the bleak circumstances that they uh, saw around about them, they lived each day in the shadow of those promises and they ordered their lives so that they would be aligned to it it when it came to pass. Some people have called that group the redemptionists. Simeon was such a one as was Anna. The Bible says in Luke chapter two, verse 25, in Jerusalem at that time, there was a man, Simeon by name, a good man, a man who lived in the prayerful expectancy of help for Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And then of Anna, it says, at the very time Simeon was praying, she showed up, that's Anna, broke into an anthem of praise to God and talked about the child to all who were waiting expectantly for the freeing of Jerusalem. So there was a small group of people who looked with anticipation and expectation (laughs) for this long promised Messiah to actually come. They refused to give in, either to passive despair on the one hand, or to the notion that the promised deliverance depended on what they did on the other. And it was this latter group that we might call the redemptionists that actually got to hold God's promise in their arms. Now I suggested at the beginning of the message that many of us, you, me, perhaps most of us, Live in the shadow of promises that God has made to us, perhaps words that have been spoken over our lives, times that God has planted something in our heart, in our own journey, and we have a deep sense that actually we live under God's purpose and in the shadow of his promises, some things that he has spoken to us about that we have perhaps not yet seen. For some, it might be somewhat general. For others, it's quite specific. Perhaps the promise that you have relates to some kind of, uh, or sphere of ministry. Perhaps a missions call, a call to uh, an area of healing, or prayer, or deliverance, or hospitality. Maybe the promise that you carry in your heart concerns uh, a a sphere of employment. You may feel called to serve in a certain setting and believe that God wants you to be a very positive and shaping influence in that sphere. It may have to do with some entrepreneurial venture that God has laid on your hand. Perhaps it relates personally to your family and it has to do with salvation of loved ones. You feel that God has promised and yet they seem so far away. The possibilities in terms of what that promise might be for your life are actually endless. But we are waiting for the word to be made flesh in our lives and in our circumstances. We are, if you like, waiting for our personal Christmas season when the promise is realized and made flesh. Like the Jewish people, there are times in our lives when those promises are so real, so tangible It grips our thinking, it motivates our behavior, and we await them with a sense of anticipation and expectation. Around every corner we think it's gonna be fulfilled. Other times, perhaps because of the long delay, it drops to the back burner of your thinking and hence your living. Sometimes that promise actually causes you a great deal of pain when you think about it, so you try not to. Sometimes we're tempted to try and live as if no promise has been spoken over us at all, but that's actually not possible because when God gives a promise, it flows like a subterranean river through the course of our lives, and it just pops up, sometimes in the most inopportune times and moments. Some of us respond to those promises that God's given us in the same way, in the same manner that the zealots did. We've grown tired of things that never seem to come to pass, so we decide to give them a helping hand. And to the degree that we walk in that pathway, we inevitably embrace confusion. You know, the coming of the Messiah required a miracle. It required an act of God. It was beyond the the ability of the people to produce. And whatever it is that God has promised you, I tell you, it will require a miracle. It it will require an act of God that is beyond your ability to produce. The coming of God's promise to your life will be no less miraculous than the coming of that ultimate promise. You can't produce it from your own strength or resources. So often I watch people tire of waiting for their Isaac, as it were, and they seek to take matters in their own hands, as Abraham did, and inevitably it produces the confusion of an Ishmael. You know, the offspring of human expediency will always be an Ishmael. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10 in the Amplified Version, speaks to that very temptation to take matters into your own hands. And it says, Behold all you enemies of your own selves, who attempt to kindle your own fire and work out your own plan of salvation, who surround and gird yourselves with momentary sparks, darts, and firebrands that you have set aflame. Walk by the light of your self-made fire and in the sparks that you have kindled for yourself, if you will. But this you shall have from my hand, you shall lie down in grief and torment. You know, when we try and do things in our own steam, under our own flesh, the end result is never a positive one. As much as we hate waiting, you know, God knows why delay is necessary. Um, Somebody once said, God is never late, but I would like to add, oh, the opportunities he misses to be early. And we, I don't know anybody whose spiritual gift is waiting okay? Patience is not a forte of the flesh. We wanted it yesterday. But God doesn't do things yesterday. And as the Bible says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Again, I would want to change that and say both the steps and the stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord. You know, for some of you, the thought of actually doing things to make the promises happen isn't even something you would consider. You just don't have the energy for it. You've run out of steam and the cynicism has gripped your heart, and, and you, you, are, you are bound by a grinding sense of futility. You're, homing, you're, you're haunted and tormented by, by the, the thought that this is never going to change, that that sickness will never go, that that ailing marriage will never be better, that the business setback will never be reversed, that the ache of divorce will never be removed, that that wayward child will never come back. I'm thinking about this as I was preparing it and being a 60s kid, the words of the Beatles song came back to me, where they sing, nothing's going to change my world. And some of us take that position. Some of you don't remember the Beatles, you might remember you too, because they they sing stuck in a moment. And it seems like we are anchored and nothing is ever going to be different where others are excited about the promises, you can't even muster up any enthusiasm anymore. And, and in your worst moments, you're not even sure that you believe them. You know, it's easy enough for us to think, and I've thought it at times, I don't deserve God to fulfill these promises. I've certainly made enough mistakes to make him think that he might want to reconsider and change his mind. Of course, there are people like the Pharisees, and maybe some of us are like them this morning. We go through the religious setup. We're at church, we do quiet times, we tithe, we do whatever. We give lip service to the fact that God makes promises, but perhaps we've come to a place where it's actually easier to live as if they don't exist, and we just do the religious thing. And then, of course, there are the redemptionists, the Simeons, the Annas. We are going to do it. They wait with patience and faith. Providence may in fact stand before them with empty hands, but they refuse to allow circumstances to dissuade them of the validity of those promises. You know, as I was thinking about this, to be truthful, sometimes we're a mixture of all of those things, at least I am. There are times I'm a zealot and I get to work. There are other times I sit with a grinding sense of futility and despair. Sometimes I can be a Pharisee. You know, it's funny, but when we read the story about the Pharisees, have you ever noticed and you're thinking it's always somebody else, it's never you? You know, the Pharisees are always somebody else. Listen, there are three things that you need to be a Pharisee. Number one, you need to believe in the supernatural. Number two, you need to be totally committed to the Word of God. And number three, you need to be committed to personal holiness. How many people qualified to be a Pharisee? Oh, only three of us. Okay. The Pharisees are always somebody else. That's what I said. You know, Christmas reminds us that at each season, at each time we come to Christmas, we're reminded God makes and keeps promises. One of my favorite scriptures is, he's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he need repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not bring it to pass? And some of us again, just this morning, need to be reminded of that. You know, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. His promises are sure. If he's made a promise to you, I want to tell you this morning, that promise is irrevocable because he cannot lie. It's not that he does not lie. The Bible says it's impossible for him to lie, both in Hebrews chapter six, verse 18, and Titus chapter one, verse two. It is impossible for God to lie. As rocks can't swim and hippos can't fly, God can't lie. Deceit is not an option for him. And if he's made a promise to you, That's sure. His promises are sure because he's faithful. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, God can be trusted to keep his promises. His promises are sure because God is unchanging. James chapter one verse 17, he never changes or casts a shifting shadow and his promises are sure because he's strong enough to fulfill them. Romans chapter four verse 21, God is able to do whatever he promises He isn't one of those people that over-delivers and uh, uh, sort of over-promises and under-delivers. He promised the aged Simeon that he wouldn't see death before he had embraced God's Messiah. And he did. And uh, Simeon says, Lord, I can go now. Let your servant depart. You have fulfilled your word. What I want to do through this series, what I want to encourage in your hearts is, there's a faith regarding the promises that he has made to you. Even though for you, when it comes to thinking about those promises, providence stands before you with empty hands. You look and you say, I don't see a sign of it. I know for many of us there is a tension between the faith that we profess and the facts that we perceive. What do we do with that tension? Do we hold it believing that God is sure? Sure believing that he will fulfill his word. And the, the purpose of this series is to try and birth that hope in our hearts Sometimes we've got to contend for our promises. And I'm going to talk about this as we go through our series. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Timothy, my child, I entrust to you this command, which is in accordance with the words of prophecy spoken in the past about you. Use those words as weapons in order to fight well, with their aid being equipped by them, inspired by them, and in the strength of them. Hold on to those promises. Don't let them go. Don't let cynicism, you know. Cynicism's got three sneers for everything and three cheers for nothing. And our world is marked by the cynic. You can't hold promises and cynicism in the same same location. You have to lay down the cynicism and say, Father, I believe. Jesus, I believe your word. I will not let this go. Not without a fight. There goes my alarm. Hey, wake up, folk. brilliantly timed, actually, because I'm just about finished. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand in just a moment, but before you do, I want to read a passage to you. Um, It's a very wonderful passage, and it's often read at Remembrance Services. It's a combination of Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 and Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. I'm reading from the Living Bible and it says this, But in the last days, Mount Zion will be the most renowned of all the mountains of the world, praised by all nations. People from all over the world will make pilgrimages there. Come, they will say to one another, Let us visit the mountain of the Lord and see the temple of the God of Israel. He will tell us what to do and we will do it. For in those days, the whole world will be ruled by the Lord from Jerusalem. He will issue his laws and announce his decrees from there. He will arbitrate among the nations and dictate to strong nations far away. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall no longer fight against each other for all war will end and there will be universal peace and all the military academies and training camps will be closed down. Love the Living Bible. Love the Living Bible. You know, that's our hope, that's our dream, that's what we live for because there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which reign righteousness. And if this two-minute silence doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily to stir nationalistic feelings, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to remember, to, to, to reflect, to simply pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for those promises that you have made. Would you stand with me? thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.